Hi, welcome to How I Hear It, a podcast uh, where we talk about music and culture and the things that happen when those two things impact. My name is Jordan Mardik. I'm Max Lopez. And today on the podcast, uh, we're going to talk about prolific songwriters. We're not experts. We're not industry insiders. We don't have any special scoops. We're just nerds. And we like to talk a lot. And about music especially. So join us on the other side of the bump for a conversation that might be interesting to you. Woo! talking about prolific songwriters wow and i think the first thing that we want to do before we get into our big examples which for us are people that we've admired for a long time for me it's neil young for you it's gonna be prince it's gonna be prince it's gotta be prince rogers nelson exactly and i don't know neil young's middle name but i feel as strongly if not less than you do it's clearly you're not a very big fan though (laughs) Uh, I mean, but so first, we wanted to go through examples of what we're trying to talk about with what a prolific songwriter means or what like this big, heavy uh, cultural hero thing that we, we sort of put on this mantle to figures who are in rock and who are in pop. And uh, there's a lot of people that are excluded from that for various reasons. Uh, and I think that's definitely something that we want to touch on. It's going to be, I think, more detailed than an essay after this conversation. But for this bigger conversation that we're going to have, we want to talk about some examples from recent past, from uh, like the 50s, 60s, see what sort of stocks up to being a prolific songwriter, what it means. Yeah, and you know, like, like you're pointing out, often or it's important to define these terms because the language that you use to define something will usually mean it, it indicates who you include and who you don't. Right. Um, so if you start to parse that phrase of prolific songwriter, um, if we start looking at what it means to be prolific, uh, I mean, dictionary definition, it means just doing a lot of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like ma- producing a lot of work, right? Um, having a large body of work and already there, that's going to be, um, prohibitive to some people who, uh, I mean, at some level, you know, if you just don't have a lot of time, if you just, whatever, like, but if we're already talking about kind of famous artists or, or artists you know have a lot of skill and a lot of talent um yeah take it <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, i mean so there's very there's like little examples that uh don't like Joni mitchell was unable to play in a lot of the bigger venues mm-hmm. as a folk artist moving mm-hmm. to new york and she sort of had her weird things set for her by fate she contracted polio as part of an epidemic in the 40s and uh, lost a lot of the power in her left hand. Mm. So fingering chords and uh, playing guitar, which was her, her main thing that she'd accompany herself on, uh, was a little bit more difficult. So she established a lot of open tunings that we use today. Wait, Joni Mitchell? Joni Mitchell, yeah. And she wasn't able to, uh, since she wasn't able to play the standard like E, A, like scales and tuning that people had already been using guitar with for so long, she made her own things up mm. because she had to. And in the same way, was told um, a number of times at different venues in New York that she wasn't able to play the established songs of the era that a lot of men had access to, that a lot of men were able to go from cafe to cafe and bar to bar and play these sort of standard folk songs. Mm -hmm. But because she was a woman and because she was sort of looked down upon for being a woman musician in that way, she 
like saw to it that she said, well, I'll just write my own songs. Mm -hmm. If you're saying I'm not allowed to do this, if you're saying, if you're denying me access in this way, I'm going to write my own songs. And that's sort of like in spite of these systemic problems of uh, the patriarchy, she's able to become a groundbreaking artist in so many different ways. Right. So by one measure in terms of, you know, Johnny Mitchell's prolific in the sense of making, producing the work, but maybe there's another aspect of being prolific um, that's important, that's key here, which is um, it has to, you know, what kind of audience does it reach? Right. Because how, pro you know, if you could be an outsider artist who just records, you know, experimental music in your basement and you have like 20, you know, 20 years worth of material, but no one's ever seen it, mm -hmm. you know, by our, by this definition that we're, we're establishing right now, that doesn't really qualify as being prolific, right? Sure, and I think a lot of it has to do with where you and I come as, I mean, I'm a white dude who grew up in the suburbs in Indiana, and I think my access to music was largely influenced by what was on the radio when my parents were driving their cars. Uh, not to say my parents weren't fans of music. I mean, they were. They listened to the Beatles, they listened to the Rolling Stones, and they also idolized those people as these prolific songwriters that we're thinking about. But there's a million ways to define it, right? Like, uh, I think the, the songwriting duo of Mick and Keith and Stones, that's a prolific songwriter, but we're talking about one person, you know, we're talking about a Bob Dylan, uh, mm -hmm. who's like kind of our baseline for this. Right. Uh, and the, the reason that we don't have um, as many examples of POC or uh, of queer people involved in this is because they've been denied access to these things for a long time. And so there's the way that things have been unfairly structured in the world of pop music and in the world of the music industry has sort of seen to it that a lot of white men in general have become these songwriters. The mm -hmm. things that they are able to get away with are things that people of color and that queer people have to sort of work doubly as hard to get to, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that gets the, to put a fine point on it when we start parsing the second half of that phrase, what it means to be a songwriter. Um, you know, if you just like close your eyes and imagine a songwriter, you're probably thinking about someone along the lines of Bob Dylan probably white, probably a guy, um, you know, someone who has this kind of air of being, uh, you know, a troubadour or like a, a you know, someone who just kind of uh, smokes cigarettes and, and goes to a coffee shop and writes in their little moleskin notebook and then like plays at the open mic later that night. Um, but, and, and I think that really gets at the exclusionary aspect of what it means, of what, what we think of as when we think of songwriters, because um, for example, you know, arguably musicians like James Brown are some of the most prolific and, and influential songwriters uh, in, in, in world music, period. Um, but we don't often think of him as a songwriter in the model of Bob Dylan, who's writing these really, really kind of literary, um, you know, highbrow or thought of as highbrow songs. Um, but some of the most, you know, important lyrics that have ever been written have been, ow! Yeah, you know, and, right. and uh, you know, he, he would write a song with his band. Um, so, again, he's not alone. He's not alone writing in a, in a moleskin notebook, but he's with his band and he's like indicating with movement of his body. He's dancing and he's, uh, he's pointing at different musicians and telling him to start to stop. Um, so it's almost like, you know, he's doing something much closer to what hip hop musicians would eventually be doing in terms of uh, sampling and picking out little parts and putting them together and mashing them up. Um, right. It's still songwriting. But it's it's just a good indicator of the ways that how we define what it means to write a song um, will will kind of limit who we consider a really good songwriter. 
Right. And I mean, the examples that came to mind for us off the bat are pretty uh, stereotypical ones, like thinking of Bob Dylan as this like wild haired guy who, while focusing on tradition and using these uh, like folk narratives, also established a voice in the present that was impactful on culture, like like writing songs that were political protest songs like that that defined a generation in a lot of ways and uh, defined like the way people felt about things he was voicing these things like channeling his uh, ability to songwrite was channeling the ire of these people who are fighting against the norms and who are trying to establish themselves as like a revolution against the government and for all of that that whole thing's flaws it's he still was able to capture that right you know and and we, I mean, you know, already for, right off the bat, we've been kind of, we want to be critical of this idea, these kind of uh, exclusive ideas about what it means to be a songwriter. But we're, I think we're both people who are also, who, who really like uh, and appreciate that kind of more conventional kind of songwriting too. I mean, we, we, we're both people who like to read a lot. Um, and, you know, like I appreciate, like, I, you know, I grew up listening to Bob Dylan and, and Paul Simon and these different white singer songwriters that my mom really liked, uh, still likes. Um, and I, you know, part of what I appreciate so much about that kind of songwriting is it's multiple layers, um, is the way that, uh, you know, like we were talking uh, off pod about, uh, about don't think twice, it's all right. And that's kind of like, you, you can read by Bob Dylan, you can read that on its, on one level as, you know, it's a sad song. It's like, man, like, you know, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be gone, but don't, don't think twice about it. You know, like it's, I'm just a sad guy. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, but the other level of it is like, no, he's, he's really mad. He's really, it's like, it's a song about just like sticking it to, uh, you know, your, your partner or whatever who, who betrayed you. Um, and it's funny. It's a funny song if you read it on those multiple levels. Um, but I think, you know, part of what I think we're going to argue here is that that's not the only way to make a multi-layered song. Sure. And what we're looking for, uh, based on our rubric, maybe I'll just read some of that off right now is we're looking for some sort of emotional or literary intelligence that's present in the music that is intentional in some way, uh, even if it's like, even if it's uh, very esoteric in the way that it's presented, that there's still this depth um, that you're, as the listener, being challenged in some way to sort of figure out what the true meaning is. But that's one aspect of what we're looking for in a prolific songwriter. That's not just volume. You right. Know, and, uh, and definitely volume is one. But And as part of that, do you think, that as as a certain kind of music fan, we're looking for stuff that is gonna challenge us. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also yeah very specific to the what we are uh, that we're looking for that stuff that we're challenging ourselves all the time. Um, not that either of us have always been that way necessarily, right. but because we're very nerdy and we want to have these bigger conversations and we want to have these big thoughts about this stuff, right. we're also we're very like looking for a challenge. We're looking for like reading between the lines like what did he really mean like right. how does this uh translate into this world you know and i guess that gets at like at least two different ways that we're defining success because on some level for both of us a, a song is successful if it challenges us a little bit if it works on multiple levels if it's somewhat intellectual or, or, or makes us feel like we're smart you know on some level but also i think we would both agree that a song is successful um if just a lot of people like it you yeah. know what i mean like so we we want to hold that recognition that you know we have very specific tastes in some ways but also as as music fans and as you know people that are that like to think critically we're interested in understanding what's important about 
music that reaches a wide audience. Sure. The ubiquity is definitely like ubiquity popularity, but it's also, it has to do with some sort of uh, this deeper connection to people that people really feel strongly about like uh, listening, like Paul McCartney is one of our examples that we've talked about. And he's, he has so many songs that connect on a really deep level where the lyrics to let it be might be vague when you read them off a piece of paper, but the, the way it's performed, the way it's sung, the context in which it's placed on the album, like these are the ways that people have reacted to where it's, it's, uh, it's a song that resonates so mm-hmm. deeply with so many people. And it doesn't really mean that it's like a, a throwaway song. You know, I think a lot of what we think of as pop on the radio today, I would say, no, this is really, you know, this isn't necessarily a prolific song. You right, know, right. Hearing like Call Me Maybe right. uh, isn't necessarily a song that like, while it maybe resonates with a lot of people, it isn't like a let it be where it's deeper feeling, deeper level of uh, understanding the world around us and understanding these thoughts and feelings. Right. Like, it's not the same, it's not the equivalent of like, uh, you know, you, you might have a, a choir do a version of Let It Be at like a wake or at like, uh, you know what I mean? Right. After some kind of tragic event or something like that. But you're not <laughs> Yeah. Like, how crazy does it have to? have written a song that people will involve in these like bigger religious traditions in some way. Right. Like that's crazy. Some guy in England wrote a song that's going to be played at your funeral. Right. But then the flip side, I mean, what if you have, you know, uh, you're at your grandma's memorial and Colleen maybe comes on. Yeah. It doesn't work. Not. Yeah. Doesn't. No one wants that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so, so what kind of person does it take? Do you think to, to make this kind of music, to make music that maybe works on all these levels that you know people feel really strongly about um you know i I think we would agree it takes a certain kind of person to to make that music and then there's these like there's the different levels of what kind of person that is i think it's all about eccentricity and it's all about this sort of character that you build up in yourself and one that we were uh trying to figure out was kate bush which i think for a lot of reasons isn't something that's present in our daily lives i think because she's a uk musician mainly and maybe just generationally you know, I see how she has inspired a lot of people that are like, I see how she's inspired like Fiona Apple and right. how she's been a, uh, a leader in producing a lot of her own work and taking all these risks. But it's just not music that, you know, for the timing or whatever, it doesn't, didn't catch with me. Mm-hmm. But she is still this enormous character. Yeah. And she's able to build these like this big ethos that sort of exists around her as her family recorded her growing up as a child, you know, with uh, they, her dad bought a reel-to-reel tape recorder and started recording her songs at age like four or five or something i think i read and that was just part of uh the talent that was present in her that even her family saw at a young age right yeah and it seems like at some level that's you know it's a level of of obsession i think that we can see is pretty consistent across um these these artists that we're that we're considering uh as prolific songwriters right now um that there's a level of um yeah, like like mania almost, where you know, the the music, or the the need to make music like gets its hooks into 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 these people, and um, they're they're almost like it's this interesting tension between control and lack of control, like because often these individuals are like you know not always, but often they're kind of semi producers themselves, or they're really interested in like every level of the production of their work and want it to sound a really specific way, have a really clear vision. And want to realize it, um, but also there's this level of, at which like they're they're not really in control. Maybe, you know, they're they're driven by, uh, 
yeah, like this desire, this need to make the music. Yeah, I mean, that's another one that we have touched on is uh, Bjork. Uh, right. And Bjork has definitely the volume of output, definitely this like emotional and literary intelligence where you can read so many layers into her music. Um, it's challenging. And yeah, very challenging. She's also just an extremely eccentric person. There's mm-hmm. such a, like, I don't know how many SoundCloud artists, how many art school kids, how many indie bands would not exist today if there wasn't a precedent right. set by Bjork. And, you know, I think her precedent was maybe also Kate Bush in a lot of ways. Totally. And uh, that's one way to be eccentric, but I don't know if Bjork has the ubiquity, like popularity, like we were both talking off pod about how we couldn't name a, a Bjork single. Right. You know, but I, I've definitely, I've sat with albums and I've enjoyed that. But I don't know if I would be, there's like a, not a, a radio hit. She's not trying to make it. Right. Which is a, a, an integrity move, I think, on one part. But it's not fulfilling what our rubric for a prolific songwriter is, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the other side of that just it would be like Kanye West. Kanye West. Yeah, I mean, you know, so someone like Kanye West, he, he checks all those boxes. He's an eccentric individual driven by a kind of commitment to perfection, um, you know, or in his vision, right? And, and like he, he has a vision, he sets out to realize it, and his vision just keeps getting grander and grander. Um, and we didn't really, I don't know if we put this on our list of, of aspects, but Bjork was making me think about this, and Kanye makes me think about this too. It's distinctive. Mm-hmm. It's distinct, like, like they create, and maybe this is like so obvious, it, doesn't, it goes without saying, but like, you know, these are artists who have defined sounds for themselves. So, you know, Kanye West, um, as rapper, producer, uh, has such a clear, uh, I guess it seems wrong to call it a vision, but like as he hears um, something really clearly, which is his sound, and it has to do with like, you know, sampling classic R&B records and just having like a, an encyclopedic knowledge uh, of those samples and mobilizing them in such a way that it's it's pretty clear that you're listening to a Kanye West song. Yeah. His his identity is all over it. That's also that's one of the main prolific songwriter things. But also his identity as time has gone on and how we've seen what's happened. His eccentricity went way over the edge and way over to the right of just being uh this egotistical person who's more deserving of admonishment than he is right respect at this point you right. know it's just so far to, to the other side right uh and that doesn't mess it doesn't negate his body of work or anything like or that. or make him any less of a prolific songwriter right it, it's just and maybe as things will shake out we'll see on the other end of this that this is just a period you know in the same way that uh david bowie was egotistical you know did a nazi salute at one point right did a lot of like very questionable things but was a chameleonic pop star who responded to changes in music and wrote um, so many hit songs and right. was just able to like reestablish himself. Uh, and we're willing to give him, I think, as a culture collectively, despite a lot of flaws, despite a lot of problems in his career, we're willing to give him the benefit of the, benefit of the doubt as an artist because he was able to adapt, change, and because he sort of retained this uh, integrity. Yeah, and here's something I think to be said about a lot of these artists and just artists with a a wide body of work that even if they are, you know, a problematic fave of yours, um, having such a a broad 
catalog means that you can usually find something for you for yourself there. Sure. You know what I mean? Like you can find some some of Kanye's work from the period before he was talking about um, how hard it is to be at the top. Like like his his music and the narrative of his music was a lot was always a lot more compelling to me when it was about being an underdog, and he actually was. Yeah, right. Like he was living it. Right. So I can listen to that and feel, you know, uh, feel, you know, have more positive feelings toward him and, and, and the songs than I do if I listen to, you know, well, I, I guess I appreciate all of it for different reasons, but as far as having integrity, um, I can hear, you can hear that more in his early stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I think another person that we need to sort of pin down in this is, uh, Paul McCartney, right. Who is, who fits the bill, I think on, on almost every level, you know, as part of the Beatles, but also with a, a long and storied solo career. Uh, and he's also someone who we give the benefit of the doubt a lot of the time where there's periods of his work that aren't maybe as strong as they could be. There's periods where he seems to be more focused on activism. But at the end of the day, he's someone who is also just channeling the songwriting power and has has established all of these hits and, and has established a popularity. He's a knight. Yeah. And he's just, he seems like just a goofy, wholesome guy. You know, he's not a Kanye West where he's going to tweet some crazy shit. Right. He's probably going to like tweet a photo of the inside of his pocket. Right. He's, <laughs> he's a dad. Yeah. Yeah. He's a grandpa. Right. Yeah. But he's still, uh, he's a prolific songwriter in the sense that he has the volume he has the uh, emotional intelligence, the literary intelligence of writing these songs. The songs are durable. Mm-hmm. They're and extremely popular in their heyday and today. Right. And uh, I think what he lacks in terms of what we're looking for is that eccentricity factor of, like, obsession. Right. Of just being completely lost in the work. Right. Um, There's something leisurely... Yeah, about a lot of his music and about a lot about his persona. He's really taking it easy. Yeah, and like that, there's something really attractive about that too. Like that's fine. Yeah, there's something exhausting, you know, as much as it is rewarding to engage with, like, you know, uh, with a really difficult artist. Sure. I mean, you look at like the work of a Sid Barrett, right? Uh, the work of like Warren Zevon, and you see the toll that it exacts from them. Like right. they're literally being drained. You know, it's like it's like yeah, it's like witnessing, yeah, someone uh, pushing themselves past their limit, which is exciting. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why we like, you know, that's why people watch sports, or uh, you know, that's why we like drama or, or like in fiction. You know, it's because we want to see people push to their like past their limit, um, but not all the time. Yeah, I mean, and that's here's another good point of what we're trying to talk about is uh, Janis Joplin, right? Someone who is famous for almost exclusively covers of songs, but before she passed away, recorded an album with a lot more original material. And it's sort of sad that we don't get to see what her career would have looked like mm-hmm. as an original recording artist, as a solo career, you know? Uh, and her voice was so defining in so many ways and was so unique right. and powerful. And because her life was cut short, uh, we don't get to see how that plays out. You know, I think the cultural fabric of her story would be a little bit longer and have a little bit more uh, depth if her life would have been longer, which we yeah. can't change. Right, right. 
Yeah. I mean, whereas someone like Dolly Parton, uh, who, who, for whatever reason, did, you know, stuck around long enough to write, you know, 100 songs or however many. Yeah. Just and just kept writing them. And then yeah. they were hits and hits and hits. And in a genre of music that is country, but not the country that we think of today, I guess. Right. Uh, and it's like, uh, I think, still very popular in Heartland America just to see that person or that persona struggle to make it, you know, her and her whole narrative is kind of like just a good hearted person right. who's trying to tell stories that relate to these kinds of people. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's any real like garbage associated with her either. Like, I don't know that she's ever really been bogged down with any sort of, uh, I don't know, scheme mm-hmm. or she's never been mired in whatever whatever other people have been taken down by, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But also here we don't really get for with Dolly Parton, we don't really get the kind of like literary quality. Um, So, I mean, in everything we've talked about so far, nothing's matched up a hundred percent. Right. Like, no, there isn't any single artist that has, I don't think we're trying to match everyone. Exactly. exactly. That's not, you don't want to see a hundred Bob Dylan's. Right. And, but Dolly, Dolly Parton's interesting because, you know, uh, song, some of the songs she's best known for, like Nine to Five or, or whatever. Like, I mean, these are she's a prolific songwriter, um, and the songs aren't super complex. They're not. They're, but like uh, Let It Be, you know, which again isn't doesn't have that many layers, uh, except for maybe spiritual layers or whatever. But but it just it's open enough and broad enough and and yeah, broad enough in its appeal um, that we can all kind of see ourselves in it. We've all worked Nine to Five, or right. we've all had that feeling of just being. You know, just wanted to uh, say peace out uh, to our boss, you know? Oh, yeah. And uh, I think that's something that everyone sort of shares. But then there's different, like, levels of, like, Bob Dylan maybe is one of the heavier ones of just the heavy-handed, like, oh, yeah, you're not going to listen to this once and get it. Right. You've got to listen a couple times. You've got to listen to the album before this to really know what I'm trying to say. A hard rain's about to fall is not necessarily about rain. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Okay. I don't know what it's about, okay. <laughs> but you could find out. It's deep. Yeah. And this is the same with uh, like one of the more popular acts today, like Radiohead, mm. who puts out a lot of music. Mm-hmm. It's not a single person, you know, I, and I, probably a lot of people would argue against that. Probably a lot of people would go with Johnny Greenwood or people would go with Tom York. Right. But I, they have a huge amount of music. They have reinvented themselves over and over again, just like. Bob Dylan, right. just like Bowie, right. just like so many of these artists that we're, we're talking about are just able to make changes. Right. And at the same time as like trying to embrace change within uh, their genre they're in or within pop music at, the, at whatever time period they find themselves, they're also not afraid to take what seem like risks to their personal uh, aesthetic. Mm. It, it, like the two are sort of carried hand in hand. And they seem to be, they, they should be oppositional in some way. Yeah, that if you're sort of changing your sound to match what's happening, there should be like something has to drag, but right. it doesn't. And I think it's in like diving deep into these uh, these big risks that you take and these big changes, they're able to find new parts of their own songwriting and new parts of themselves to express. Yeah, and something about uh, I mean, like all, all these artists that we're talking about so far have, are again creating kind of distinct sounds or, or kind of. Uh, are kind of the cutting edge 
often of either, either a kind of uh, emergent subgenre or something like that, or maybe just something that hasn't been replicated yet because it's still because it's just so unique. Um, but I think there is a relationship that we haven't kind of uh, spoken to yet between how committed you are to your personal vision, like how, how these people are just kind of looking inside, which doesn't mean that they're not influenced by other people, right? But it just means that like to some degree these people are, these individuals are guided by, you know, some internal compass that they have. Right. And that often, or these individuals that we're talking about, it's led them to create something that no one's made before. Mm-hmm. I think this is how we're excluding a lot of people. Like, uh, this is how we are excluding uh, Madonna. Right. And, like, more, like, very popular artists, definitely. Uh, people who, have, who are definitely eccentric and who right. have a volume of output, but who don't have that. I, I guess what we're talking about is a, a, artistic originality and integrity right. there's, there's, that they're yeah. following. And you could be a performer. You can be, I mean, Madonna's a, a groundbreaking performer. Definitely. You know, I mean, no one was wearing cone bras. Uh, or you know, humping the ground, uh, the humping the stage in exactly the same way that she did in the '80s, right? But um, that doesn't necessarily mean that. And and we can't pretend to know how much time she spent alone in solitude, reflecting and 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 writing, you know, like a prayer or whatever. I don't think she even necessarily wrote that song. Sure, but maybe she did. Uh, cut that. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, there's something about there, there's different artists emphasize different things, and we're looking at people who are you know who almost seem lonely sure in their pursuit of their kind of of realizing their their uh inner vision but then there's a uh, a drive where it's you're not maybe you're not as openly sharing it as much and that's where you have your nick cave and your tom waits right whereas these guys who you can only imagine them in like the backs of bars riding on napkins right. ashtray full of cigarettes you right, know right, right. most of it doesn't make sense maybe but they're just at it man they're mm-hmm. working they're right. just like they are channeling whatever's coming through them and it's just misery and it's so good to listen to right but it also doesn't have the range of the other people that we're thinking of they're still i mean and in, in my mind two of my biggest heroes musically yeah. are Nick Cave and Tom Waits. Yeah. But I don't know if they're the, the people that we as a, a society are holding up to this level of prolific. Right. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. I think we're ready to move on into our, our next chapter. You think so? I think so, Jordan. Right on. Join us after the bump where I'll be talking Neil Young. And I'm going to be talking about my man, Prince Rogers Nelson. Woo! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it um right now we're gonna do kind of a deep dive on a couple of prolific songwriters uh songwriters prolific by our definition um and i want to start by by talking to you jordan a little bit about prince rogers nelson who prince rogers nelson better known as prince later on known as the artist formerly known as prince uh, as indicated by an unpronounceable symbol can you draw the symbol now uh it's kind of it looks a lot like a femme symbol but it's got a squiggly bit and some other stuff going on. Uh, I don't. I can't really recall exactly what it looks I can, like. I, can, I think that I and our listeners can picture that perfect. Yeah. Uh, all you need to know is it's called the love symbol. I'm pretty sure. Um, so, <laughs> but it's not a heart. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, Prince. It, 
which was his given name, um, uh, was born in, uh, I feel like, 1956 uh, in Minneapolis. And he was... Why are you saying I feel like? 1958. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I could have just looked down at my notes. I like that you went with feel rather than what you've written down. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I just... Uh, I go where the, the spirit takes me. I appreciate it. Okay. It's not important. Okay. Uh, We're not going to get all the facts right. We're no. trying to get feelings. No, no, no. This is, this is about, yeah. This Fa- is all gut. Facts don't care about our feelings. Absolutely. As, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, cut that. Okay, so Prince, born 1958 in Minneapolis. He was, was writing songs right from the jump. Uh, a lot like Kate Bush. Uh, as soon as, you know, he was seven. He had he had written the song, um, you know. It, it it didn't take too much longer. Basically, uh, maybe ten years, like a decade later, he's seventeen and he's recorded his uh, rather um, signed a contract with Warner Brothers. Um, and his his first album for you, he played practically every instrument um, on that record. Wrote all the songs, but I think one, um, and negotiated complete creative control. Uh, at age 17, over his music, which he, he never compromised on. And I, I don't know, I think that gets uh, already, I've only, you know, we're, we're 17 years into his life, or, or I guess 19 years into his life by the time he's come out with that, that first album, and already he's checked pretty much all the boxes that we've discussed. Right. Um, you know, well, I, I guess except for a large body of work, because he had just begun, but already he's precocious. You know, he's doing it super young. He's um, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't think you record an album and negotiate complete creative control over it at age 19 unless you're obsessed. Um, so I, I think that's, he's already checking that box too. Um, but I guess, you know, it kind of speaks to, Prince was always someone who, uh, whose career was just kind of defined by contradictions. You know, uh, like one of his best known songs, Controversy. That, that was like, that was the, the name of the game uh, for Prince. Um, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, I, I guess like, like one of those contradictions is he was always on the technological cutting edge uh, sure. as an artist. Yeah. But also later on in his career, he was kind of understood as like a Luddite, right? Like someone who hated technology, who thought the internet was... Uh, gonna destroy music, and uh, you know we kind of think he's goofy for that. Sure. Um, but you but know, how is he feeling? Like uh, some of the things that we've established in our rubric for prolific songwriters. Well, so I mean, over the, the course of his career, uh, beginning in you know '78 with with For You, with his first album, he ended up recording 39 albums, which is an insane amount. It's and an insane. There's yeah. still a vault. Yeah, so, you know, he ended up settling down in Minneapolis in this huge mansion, um, ended up being called Paisley Park, and, you know, was fully outfitted. I mean, he's a, he was a wealthy dude. Uh, he had it totally outfitted with all these recording studios and all this equipment, obviously, and uh, there's there actually a New York Times article where um, a journalist went and interviewed him in Paisley Park and was kind of asking him about how, like, this huge body of work that he'd made, and Prince basically asked the responded to the journalist by saying well look i mean if you had a song in your head like at all times and you could just 
if you were just hanging out at home, you could just record it, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but I think that's the point is that he was always making music. Sure. And I think Neil Young, who I've chosen as my, uh, my animus in this conversation, is a, a lot in the same way. And he has another conversation with uh, Cameron Crowe in an early Rolling Stone interview where he says, uh, Cameron Crowe's sort of asking him, how do you write so many hit songs? You know, how do you get it? And he compares it to hunting a rabbit or chasing a rabbit that you're not going to get the rabbit out of the hole by like going in and grabbing it. You're not going to get the rabbit out by just d- chasing directly after it, but sitting next to it, singing a song, mm. you know, talking to it, waiting patient, mm. sort of coaxing it out. And he also, in that same interview, sort of says, like, I don't understand why people would work so hard at music. It's not something you should be working on. It should just be something that comes to you, that you let happen naturally. And I think it's the, the same idea that we were talking about before. These people are thinking of themselves as conduits. Mm. That's how they place right. themselves in the larger imagination about of what a musician is, what an artist is right. uh, in pop music. And that's what separates them is that they don't have any control as much over it as much as they are total control freaks. Right. They're still just sort of waiting for divine inspiration in some way. And I think that manifests for each of them in different ways, but there's sort of a parallel in, in the sense that they think that they're just uh, waiting for it, their vessel. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and... I'm trying to figure out where to go after that. I, I guess, you know, thinking about emotional intelligence uh, uh, in, in Prince's work, um, you know, he's someone who, I, I think it maps on well to discussion about... Uh, mm, or, what was the thing you were just talking about? Uh, I was talking about that both of them feel that they have conduits for some greater power right. that inspires them. So there's kind of like almost like passive uh, process that they have where they just, I mean, not even passive, but it just happens to them. Um, I think maps on well to, I would say like maybe major theme in Prince's work, um, which is desire, you know, or like, uh, like, longing or yearning or like an uncontrollable urge um absolutely yeah like, like he's he's always, he's always talking in his songs about um he'll be like you, you know we just had sex but i think i love you you know what i mean like to him those like sexuality and love and all that kind of stuff is all kind of intermingled um so and i guess that's what draws me to his music that's something that i'm always looking for in music and like a lot of people i you know approached his work initially from the hits from like the, the greatest hits compilation like listening to raspberry beret listening to kiss uh, and all this kind of stuff um and i think this is true of a lot of prolific songwriters you can tell me this is true uh, of you and your, your relationship with neil young but once you get past that first layer oh my god once you get past that first layer uh questions arise right sure. you have to figure out like huh like how could it be that prince has such a consistent body of work how could it be that you know the band always seems to match his energy perfectly oh it turns out he's playing every instrument right and that, and this is pretty indicative of who we are as people as we're approaching this podcast this conversation that, that or the music that we choose to listen to in general is that neil young for me was music that my parents listened to, you know and i I didn't really have the context or concept of how his time 
his career had worked or how these arcs had worked. I've heard Ohio, you know, I'd heard Heart of Gold, uh, and I'd heard Rockin' in the Free World. And what's crazy is that those songs span like 50 years. Like, that's a lot of time to spend, and especially a lot of songs that are just ubiquitously known. Yeah. Um, but yeah, coming into the, like, the layers of that stuff, my favorite albums now as an adult, you know, past high school, past like getting over whatever it is that makes you think you want to be cool all the time. Uh, maybe it's just, maybe it's that Neil Young's fashionable now, but you know, like the past six or seven years of me collecting records and of listening to stuff a little bit more intentionally and with a more critical ear, I've, I've like Zuma is maybe my favorite record and mm-hmm. it's him and Crazy Horse and it's loud and it's yeah. fuzzy yeah. and it's very bluesy, but the songs are just wild. Like mm-hmm. Cortez, the killer, Barstool Blues, like they're just really, really interesting songs. And they're not stuff that was going to be played on the radio at any point. And I don't think that he was intentionally trying to do any of that stuff with right. that record specifically. Right. But it's sort of these like bigger allegory, bigger metaphorical messages that uh, once you get past the hits, you find out that these guys are also made of some tougher stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true with Prince as well. Right. Well, and I, I wonder what kind of like uh, form do you feel like Neil Young songs, like I like to say on that album, were taking like his, you know, you're saying like the fuzzed out blues songs, mm-hmm. um, so they're pretty like it's what we think of as like a like a rock album in terms of the sections of the songs and everything, right? Sure. Well, I think he has different songs. I think he's at the heart of it a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like let's take for example Ohio. He recorded that song immediately, and they sent acetate copies of the song to DJs, which right. could only get two or three plays, you know, a session. But he just felt that he had something interesting to say. This is the, you know? the Kent State shooting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was saying, like, uh, Nixon's coming for us. We're on our own now. I hear the drumming. Four dead in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's definitely not the completely correct lyrics. But, <laughs> you know, he's trying to get this message out, get this feeling and this song that he had. Like, the inspiration came. He got his guys into the studio as fast as possible, yeah. put it on acetate recordings to get it to the DJs. It's not even, it wasn't on a record. He mm-hmm. just wrote it. Right. And he was like, this has to be released. You right. know, it's like, right. it's like SoundCloud, social media before any of that existed. Right. And like, this is where, like, also, I think Neil Young has a similar uh, relationship to technology as Prince in that way, where yeah. people probably view him as more of a Luddite. Right. Like, you can imagine him just sitting inside of his barn. A uh, ton of acoustic guitars around. Right. He's got an old rowboat somewhere. He's playing to a sheep. Yeah, and yeah. I can't imagine him with like a big flat screen TV. I can't imagine him playing Xbox right. or something like that. You just kind of imagine him living in this, uh, living in the past. He definitely plays PlayStation One. Yeah, yeah. Problem, if anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely PS One, maybe Nintendo DS. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, it's, it's the same way. Where he, they were both ahead of the curve in so many different ways with technology. But we sort of imagine them as being Luddites because they have this, I think, focus on tradition. And right. they both have very strict aesthetic visions that they're trying to fill at every turn, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and they're both people, I think, as here's something we haven't really spoken to specifically yet. But like these artists that we're talking about are music fans. Mm-hmm. They're like they're people who are absorbing actively absorbing all, all the stuff around them all the time. Right. I mean, the, the amount of changes that each of them went through over the course of their career 
and, and that's what we talked about uh, before the break too, is that there's these people who are able to respond to those changes in ways that aren't just mimicking it right. either. That they're taking an uh, original play, they're taking their own voice right. and establishing it in this other realm. And it allows them to pay homage to what's come before without just fighting it, without just taking the essence of it that made it interesting and then kind of sucking that out of it. You know what I mean? But they're able sure. to inject something new into it every time. I mean, I think... Uh, I mean, Neil, Neil Young's career is so so long. I mean, by the, by the time Ohio comes out, he'd been playing music professionally for, what, like a decade? Sure. He'd been playing... He'd played in high school in a band called The Squires, and then he played in Buffalo Springfield and, and also had a solo career while that was going on, and then did... Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, right. and uh, sort of, I think he was always just more of a control person, right. and that's why he and Steve Stills never got along in the same way. But what separates him from Steve Stills is that he was able to respond to all of these, well, technological advances, but also genre shift. You know, mm -hmm. him working with Devo, right. him working with a band like Crazy Horse, uh, him not being afraid to sort of gather his own group of people when crazy horses started doing their own thing to just keep his train rolling you know mm -hmm. and he went back and forth from like full to rock to hard rock to full to you know the album reactor which is a lot of synthesizers right he did like a rockabilly album that david geffen started to sue him because he said he was making <laughs> music that was unrepresentative of himself right <laughs> so then he made landing on water and uh right. yeah it was a, a transition back to his original sort of folk stuff but with elements now added of synthesizers and echoes on drums i think he had really incorporated before and it, it's sort of like this interest in continual learning and continuing to evolve right. alongside a lot of the things you know and that's we think of him today as like i think the bigger cultural sense maybe a guy with a guitar old right. guy with a flannel shirt on right but when you look at his career it's monumental the way that he was able to change things working with pearl jam in the 90s you know, Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore convinced him to make a feedback collage album. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. all these things that you're like, oh, yeah, this guy is just... He's just open. He's interested in finding it, yeah. finding the truth, you know, just yeah. listening to the sounds and moving himself. That and that, that makes me think about, you know, in some ways, Neil Young seems like a person who's really paying attention to the world, right? That he's like, he's like, Something going on with Monsanto, I gotta respond to Monsanto. Something's going on in Ohio, I gotta respond to Ohio. Yeah. You know, uh, there's something happening here, you know? Yeah. But I don't know what it is or whatever, you know? Uh, whereas Prince, especially early on in his career, it was all about self-exploration. It was all about, like, his inner landscape, you know? It's like, uh, you know, it's about an intimate moment between two people uh, where, where they're discovering themselves. You know, it's about... Uh, um, you know, I want to be your lover. Yeah, you know, it's it's about it's about your kind of individual frustrations. Uh, when the person that you, you know, uh, the, your love interest doesn't doesn't return that interest, right, or, or whatever it is. It's like these really individual experiences. Um, but he, he right from the beginning, he's present, presenting them in such a novel way, um, that it really stood out, and and in a way that. Um, like Neil Young was both forward-facing and looking back. Uh, and I think this is kind of one of the places where we can talk about 
prolific songwriters and that that definition, the kind of common Bob Bob Dylan definition that we were discussing, um, and we can kind of see the limits of that definition and its ability to help explain Prince, um, because Prince is an artist who, uh, like maybe Sly Stone, um, you know, a decade earlier, had been adamant that he was as interested in the Beatles and like white rock um, as he was in gospel or as he was in rhythm and blues. Um, and similarly, Prince was someone who, very, from the very beginning of his career, um, fought to be categorized by his label as pop and not R&B. Right. And I think that's something that they share also, that they, they fought against whatever was being thrown at them in terms of, you only play this, you play this, you know? And I think that's something both of them had to really work against, was the idea that they should be contained. Right. And they're also both, uh, what they share in common a lot of relationships to a studio, mm, you know? Yeah. That Prince has a studio home where he spent a lot of his time, and I think Neil Young has that as well, with his uh, upstate California ranch. Mm-hmm. He has, uh, there's all these stories about bringing David Crosby to listen to a new record, and he's got one barn rigged up with the speakers to the left side, and his whole house is speakers to the right side, and he's just out in the middle of this pond with David, and they're just listening to a barn and a house amplify a record. <laughs> and and David's story, he always says like something like Neil says, "More barn." <laughs> it's like uh, this crazy, this sort of eccentric ability to push yourself into uh, the place of songwriting and recording and be so heavily involved. And I, I think as a musician, that's not always the case. It's not something that everyone's able to just pick up. Right. The production, the engineering, the even just like the the amount of time and energy required to learn how that thing that works. Right. How to mix things, how right. to set up the board, how to get all that stuff done. It's not just like walk in and oh yeah, figure it out. Right. I mean, and and for someone like Prince, it's like, I mean. The fact that he's doing all that work alone in the studio so often for so many of his songs, um, I I mean, it's just, it's hard to get a group of people together. Sure. It's just hard to schedule people to all come together. It's hard to manage people's personalities. Without all those added challenges, it's really easy to see if you're someone who's as talented as Prince or Neil um, and as driven as they are, you can see why it's such an attractive proposition to just get into the studio alone and just do it, just hammer it out. Um, but that also gets at this, like, obsessive, semi-lonely existence, you know? That, that is, like, uh, yeah, like a, more like a scientist in a lab in some way, or, or like a, a painter in solitude than it is, like, uh, a member of a band. Right, that they're making these sacrifices for their work because I think they see the bigger picture of being remembered afterwards, of being, like, being present and being a celebrity and falling into this trap of fame isn't as important as it is to make work that you're proud of. Right. And I think that's what we give them the benefit of the doubt for so many different things. You know, I think for Prince, it's probably the Bat Dance, the one mm. that comes to mind. Yeah. yeah. Most famously for me is just making a song for a Batman movie that's comical and so silly and strange, but right. still pretty good song. Pretty good. Pretty good video. Pretty good. If you haven't, please check it out. Yeah. For Neil Young, there's a lot of other stuff. Like, I mean, his albums like railing against Monsanto, while I think coming from the best place intentionally. He's earnest. It's not, it's not anything in comparison to the work that he was doing in the 70s and 80s. Right. And uh, I think that's, we give him the benefit of the doubt because he's 
still after it. And he's sort of never really given up that artistic integrity. And I, I don't right. think we're willing to say like, oh yeah, this guy doesn't, you know, he doesn't have anything to say anymore. Right. Because he still does. Uh, but it's that like, that selfish ambition yeah. that makes it so worthwhile to watch their career and to follow it. Right. And I guess that, that is, I like that choice of words of selfish just because, and I don't know if, I think that could be argued, but I like framing it that way um, because it really um, kind of emphasizes the degree to which I think we think these artists are really focused on what they want and the way that, I mean, you know, the reason we're talking about them is because what they want is actually what we want too. And it makes us really happy when these people are just, um, you know, pers- following their own kind of North star uh, and going in that direction. And we, we always just want them to go further in some ways until they go too far or, or right. something. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but I don't think either of them can really go too far. Right. I don't think we can really, I mean, maybe we haven't heard that Prince record yet, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's the other, like, I, I guess, the, the yeah. mythos around the eccentricities and like, uh, the, the weirdness that each of them sort of inherently have. I think right. that's another really big attraction like that, that there's a vault somewhere yeah. of recordings that Prince has been making and we're not allowed to access it right away. Right. I mean, just that also that we hadn't been able to access that stuff yeah. until his death. Right. Right. That until that you had to use gulp title uh up until like a year a couple years ago in order to listen to his music the exclusive jay-z music service that's the only place you could you could find his discography since his passing i guess his estate or whatever has opened it up so now you can get on spotify and there's a youtube channel you can watch all of his videos and and all this stuff is you know when it all first came out it felt like christmas Mm -hmm. uh because all this stuff is being is, is just kind of widely available in the same way that anything else is on the internet so it's kind of interesting how how he held out for that long um, and kind of returning to something you were saying, and I think related to this too, he, his work not only spanned a long period of time, Prince's work not only spanned a long period of time, like, like Neil's and not only kind of covered a wide array of genres, but also mediums or media, you know, so yeah. that he, I mean, he's really well known for I, it, before purple rain, he was well known, but after purple rain, he became an icon. Right, and I mean, what did he produce, direct, right? Yeah, the and starred, yeah. right? Not a great film, sure. I would say. And Prince, not a great actor. <laughs> but, he, I mean, every time he's on camera, he's magnetic. Like, it's like, there's always something about him, uh, his grace, the way he holds his body, the, the like, sh- glistening, moist look in his eyes, you know? Uh, that is just like, you walk away from that movie being like, you know, I want to take that frilly white shirt off of Prince and 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 get down. Sure. You know, there's no question. And, I, and Neil Young, in the same way, produced his own. He spent a lot of time not making music, but making Human Highway, mm. uh, which is a movie that I haven't seen in a long time. But it's it's very kitsch. I've never seen very it. Very campy. Devo's in it. Okay. And it's I'm in the start of his collaborations with Devo, which I think are always underplayed a little bit because those videos yeah. have been playing like hey, hey my my and videos have been playing crazy see i've seen a music they were doing so much like performative art too i saw a music video where it was like neil young had a is it a devo music video where he's in it and he's wearing like a t-shirt and he's like jumping into the crowd or something like that you know what i'm talking about maybe i, okay. I don't know but it sounds like maybe there's many videos like that sure i mean there's a lot of stuff and i think him and like mark mothersbaugh from yeah. devo are 
similarly just trying to think and reshape their ideas of music all the time. I think that's where a lot of their compatibility came from. Yeah. But uh, I think they also influenced him to just rethink uh, his use of like synthesizer, mm-hmm. his use of like beat and time, and, right? Like, this stuff that's very ingrained into what folk music could be. Yeah. And he sort of is reshaping like the way he tells stories, the way that he shapes narratives, and the way he structures songs, and like refitting it with these other elements that he's learning from other people. Right. And that's what's super interesting. Uh, and I mean, just the. Uh, the sheer amount of hits that that guy's had, like Rockin' in the Free World came yeah. out, I think, 1989. Right. And that's so far into his career and still one of the most recognizable Neil Young songs. Right. And, and that's, I think, a difference between him and, and Prince is just that at some point Prince just tapped out yeah. from, the, from the public eye, which didn't mean that he stopped making music. It's just he didn't... He stopped being prolific in some ways by our definition... Not as not in terms of his legacy, but actively, year by year, he was making all making tons of music that just no one no one got to hear. Yeah. Um, and it's interest. It's an interesting contradiction for him specifically because selflessness and sacrifice was such a big part of his the narrative of his music. I would die for you. Uh, and so often I think that is like him being devoted to uh, a you know a love interest but also devoted to his music, devoted to his vision, devoted to his fans. Um, but at some point, I, you know, he burned out or something. Yeah. And, and, part of, and a lot of that had to do with, again, his uncompromising attitude when it came to his music. He did not, that, that's why he became the artist formerly known as Prince, as indicated by the love symbol, was because his name had been trademarked to hell. Hmm. Uh, and he, he did not have complete control over it, and he didn't want to play that game. Um, and to some degree, he knew that he didn't have to, and that right. there's something. Uh, as much as his narrative has been about sacrifice, there's a way that he's all, never compromised. Um, that he's always done exactly what he wanted to do at any given moment, you know. Um, yeah, I think that's true for for Neil Young as well. Like, uh, just in some of his latest work, where he says, like, yeah, you know, I wrote all these songs. I couldn't get my backing band, which is Willie Nelson's son, Lucas Nelson, and The Promise of the Real. His band is Neil Young's backing band. Right. And uh, they're like, they're doing their own tour, so I just called up people I know. So I had to get in the studio. I had to get there and get the songs out as fast as I could. Yeah. And like, there's something about that urgency that still exists with someone like that where you're, it's very powerful to hear about and it's inspiring to hear, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's these guys are the prolific songwriters that we're talking about because they have all of those the rubric qualities we talked about earlier they have the literary intelligence the depth in their work right they have the volume of output just so many records right but that also span genres and mm-hmm. that have defined eras right in so many ways they're both incredible characters mm-hmm. wildly eccentric um the durability of their work I think remains to be seen with Prince in a lot of ways. Right. I, I mean, I imagine that there are at least two or three more records that are going to come out of his unreleased body of work. Yeah. That are going to be big mind blowers. They're going to be hot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and there, there'll probably be another 40 that are like, eh, you know, which, yeah. which is just how much work he's produced. I mean, like at some point, like it became like really like kind of jazzy and out there. And, you know, he was still, he was still, you know, recording excellent, excellent tunes. Um, but, there, there was something about um, his hits, which, which, like, honestly, if you put all of his hits back to back and listen to them, it would probably be like eight hours 
you know, all, like only his best songs. Yeah. Like that's that's insane on its own. Staggering, yeah. Um Yeah, I mean then there's something about his music too that because he's splitting this difference in his career between this kind of like, you know, white rock tradition that includes rock opera and it's kind of like purple rain like epic narrative um and obviously he's a shredder when it comes to guitar i can't yeah. believe I, I can't believe i haven't mentioned that yet yeah yeah um and yet he's he's falls in this lineage of african-american music uh that includes this um dynamic of ancestor worship that goes all the way back to the kind of roots in west african music uh but that you know he was always constantly or, or, or rather constantly um and explicitly quoting or, or referencing people like James Brown um, or, or other funk musicians who he was really inspired by. And part of that legacy can be seen in the fact that his music, I mean, he could write a tight, like three and a half minute song, but most of those songs also have like a six or seven minute version. Yeah. Right. And you always get the sense that like any one of those songs could go on forever. Yeah. Like, you know, he could just keep repeating uh, that, that first chorus or whatever. And it's in the bridge, and it's just so tight and so good um, that you know, like I I prefer the the single version of I Want to Be Your Lover because it has a sick synth solo in it that's just not in the in the um, the version that was released on the album. Yeah, and that that's another cool thing too. It's these, they're able to uh, as artists who have this control thing, and they want to be producers, they want to be engineers, they want to be the writers and the performers. These guys are able to change their minds all the yeah, time. Yeah. And that's makes for some of the most interesting works when they sort mm-hmm. of like change their minds right. and like redirect the flow of their music in some way. Mm-hmm. And you sort of see how that you get a little peek behind the screen of like right. oh wow, this is how his process guides him this way. God. Yeah, it's yeah. so interesting. Like there there's a, a record that's kind of legendary that that Prince put out. I'd have to double check to see what year. I think it was the early nineties, but uh it's called referenced as the black album um, i don't believe it actually has a name but it's an album that um was taken out of circulation pretty much immediately after it was released by prince because he felt like it was demonic right right yeah. like this is part of this is i mean he changed his mind you know what i mean like he uh he i mean became a jehovah's witness and just had a, a major shift in his life at that point one of the and a lot of those songs are really good i think um but also a lot of those songs are like diss tracks or like early diss tracks where he's calling people out like for, for example the the rock or uh, the the rock and r&b critic nelson george you like there's a dig at him in one of those songs uh you know i mean who, who really knows what exactly was going on with prince at that point but um again like you know uncompromising totally what do you think uh like as Neil Young's legacy yeah. unfolds, and obviously his story is not over yet, he's known as the godfather of grunge in a lot of ways mm-hmm. for working with Pearl Jam for inspiring, you know, Kurt Cobain's suicide note reference, yeah, Neil Young lyrics, yeah, uh, and he's known as this big collaborator guy with with post punk artist Devo, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's sort of thought of in this grandfatherly way for what outside of the mainstream rock musician should aspire to be. I should aspire to, to please in a lot of ways. What do you think Prince's legacy is? Or do you think it still has some albums worth left to be totally defined? I mean, I think, 
I mean, first of all, I think it's the generation of current musicians who will decide that and, and, and current fans and listeners, right? Because once, you know, the record's been cut, uh, it's kind of not up to the artist to decide what it means anymore. But these people that we're talking about have created such a wide body of work that there's, again, there's like so many different fans coming from so many different areas to, to look at that. But that's the thing is like, there's so much, there's so, there's such a richness in both those, in both of these artists' work that I think it'll be interpreted a lot of different ways sure. and used by different groups of, of people in, for, for different reasons. I mean, for Prince, uh, a really, I think, one-to-one, or not one-to-one, but a, re- a pretty direct, um, you know, element of his legacy, I would say, is, is the fact that uh, African-American music and hip-hop and musicians um, are coming together with guitar again, with electric guitar. You know, I mean, people like Blood Orange uh, and, and artists like that. I mean, it, the internet, the fact that, like, uh, black bands uh, as a band, as an ensemble of musicians, playing instruments um is something that in the 80s when prince was doing it was already becoming an anachronism right and that you know i mean part of his legacy really obviously is like how he jump-started all these people's uh careers like sheila e and other who, who was a drummer for him and other people but the less direct ways that you can just see that he was someone who was always taken seriously as a black artist um always had crossover appeal with, with white fans um, and was able to thread that needle and shred on guitar. Yeah. Um, and I think in 2019, you know, we're, we're really slowly getting there. We're peeling away those layers that he was so far ahead of his time for sure. um, that I think we're going to see uh, something that's interest, that interests me a lot is how it could be that rock, rock and roll music with its origins in blues uh, can have gotten so far that why there are so few contemporary popular African-American musicians who make that kind of music. Sure. And he's such a good example of just a virtuoso yeah. who is uncompromising, compromising in his artistic vision and is also commercially successful. Yeah. Right. Often in spite of the, the ways that record labels and marketing companies try right. to like control or direct his energy. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm really interested in that story because, you know, like an example of that not working out would be Fishbone. African-American band playing, I mean, they're even kind of weirder because they're playing such an odd blend of, of genre, or I mean, odd, I guess, to record labels. But they were someone who, were, who found it even harder than Prince. I mean, they, they did not have that creative control, and they were not able to advocate for themselves to be, uh, you know, they couldn't figure out whether they were rock music or black music or whatever else, sure. because there was literally, like, divisions of record labels at that time for black music. Um, and it just didn't pan out for them in the same way. And I think it's not just an accident. I mean, there was things about Prince and his work and his particular vision that really matched his time. Yeah, and, and I mean, also in the, the idea uh, that's a very present in today's society of we're thinking about how uh, often people of color have to work twice as hard yeah. to be, get to the, the same level and often less than what right. white people are treated as. And this is, you know, Prince has worked 10 times as hard. Yeah. And he's incredibly successful, but he's still, I wouldn't say like, doesn't get the respect that he necessarily deserves mm-hmm. for as groundbreaking and incredible as a musician talent would. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right on. You feel good about that? I do. I think that wraps up our conversation on prolific songwriters for today.
thank goodness. I think we did. I think we did such a good job. Yeah, thanks for coming in. <laughs> cool. So thanks so much for listening to how I hear it. Uh, this is our first episode, so thanks for trudging through it with us. Woo! We had a great time doing it, and we're gonna have a lot more going on. Um, if you go to our website and you want to follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, um, if you want to just send us an email telling us that we fucked everything up. If you want to send us an email telling us that we are totally wrong in everything that we think and say, please do. One thing, I would love that. One thing that I am right about is that Madonna did not write like a prayer. Just FYI. Not, you nailed that one. Nailed it. Yeah. But please, like, we are very interested in having a larger conversation about that. In fact, we're going to have a couple essays and uh, maybe some reviews and a playlist on our website for you to check out while you're listening to this. So you don't have to just listen to our voices all the time. It would be horrifying. This is called... Vertical integration? Is that right? We're calling the podcast How I Hear It. <laughs> no, I, I mean the phenomenon of having a bunch of different platforms. Sure. I, I don't know. We, it's we horizontal. Own, oh. I no, guess. no, horizontal is like when, you, when a company owns all the paperclip companies. Depends on how we set the website up if you just have to <laughs> swipe or scroll. <laughs> all uh, right. Anyway, <laughs> thanks so much. I'm Jordan. I'm Max. This is our podcast.